Thanks be to God. And so welcome again to New Creation Fellowship. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome all of you on this Lord's Day, especially as we begin this new year in this new place. But with all the new things that are happening in our lives, I'm sure there are things from previous years that have still come into this one that might be discouraging you or maybe making you anxious. And if you're here today going through something in your life that could potentially cause you to be distracted or maybe incapable of giving your full focus to today's word, this is the time now where you go before the Lord and you claim the promise that he makes that if we seek him out, we will find God. And so I want to encourage all of you, if you are going through something in life that could potentially serve as static, that would interfere in receiving everything that God wants to share today, I want to invite you now, let's go to him in prayer. Let's ask for the Lord to banish those distracting thoughts so that we could be fully receptive to his word. Let's pray. heard your word being publicly read and as we have laid our burdens at your feet we ask oh god that you would help us to receive everything that you want us to receive from today's word lord you know where we have been you know the struggles that we have gone through and maybe still are going through and so father would you give us the balm of gilead as your word says the soothing healing touch of your hand through the preaching of the word that you would strengthen our soul bring conviction to our heart and bring clarity to our minds so that we can go back out into the world as being your agents of hope in a world that has become so hopeless and full of despair. Oh God, guide us and lead us and help us to hear your voice and to guide our hands, our feet with the means in which we are to do good works for your glory and for the good of the people in this world. Oh God, would you bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people together said, amen and amen. <clears throat> Excuse me, just one second. So back in 91, that's 1991, for those of you who weren't even born then, there was a movie that came out entitled Grand Canyon, starring Danny Glover and Kevin Klein, that's the movie poster right there. And the movie basically starts off with Kevin Klein's character, who plays a very filthy, rich, white lawyer, getting lost in the city of L.A., and he takes a few wrong turns here and there, and he ends up in the part of the city that a person like him should not end up. And, of course, he's down on his luck because what happens as he's driving through this bad neighborhood is that his high-end luxury car breaks down. But of course, no worries, because he's a filthy rich lawyer. And back in 91, what did filthy rich lawyers have that no one had back then? A cell phone. 
Yeah, they're popular now, and everyone seems to have them. But back then, it was only for the exclusive, only those who had enough money. And so he calls up a tow truck saying, sir, I'm stuck. Would you mind getting me? Oh, everything seems hunky-dory, right? Well, not necessarily, because out from emerging in the shadows come five young thugs led by a gang leader who politely taps on the window and looks at this lawyer and simply says, get out, get out. (laughs) The lawyer is obviously terrified with fear and he doesn't budge because he's so afraid. And this just seems to anger the leader of this gang to which he then proceeds to stand, lift up his shirt and reveal that he has a gun. Now, right before things go elevated in terms of hostility, the tow truck man shows up. And out of the truck comes a very old, rugged, African-American tow truck driver, a man by the name of Simon, who just walks past these young men as if they don't even exist. And he tells Kevin Klein's character, excuse me, sir, I'm here to tow your car. Would you put it in neutral and I'll help you get where you need to go? Now, obviously, at this point, the leader of this gang is even more infuriated, and he confronts Simon, the tow truck driver, and he looks at him and he says, yo, you dissing me, man? He said it in a little more authentic way. I couldn't, I tried practicing, but I just couldn't pull up, so I just said, I'm not going to do that, right? But he says, yo, you dissing me, man? Of course, as he says this, he pulls out his gun, and Simon, frustrated, maybe because This young man reminds him of himself at one point in his life, and he lays out a big sigh in frustration, and he says these words to this young man. He says this, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Uh, Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. That dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than the way it is. Here's the question. Have you ever felt this way as well? Have you ever felt like Simon's character in the movie Grand Canyon? Have you ever experienced something or witnessed something either in that home that you grew up in or in the work that you work at or the school that you attend or maybe amongst the friends that you hang out with that was so evil, so atrocious, so wicked to where your heart was just crying out, this ain't the way it's supposed to be. We're beginning today a new sermon series entitled Vision 2018. And actually, this is a series that we plan to do at the beginning of every new year where we're going to look at the core components of our new vision statement. Yes, we have a new vision statement. And just in case you were hiding under a rock this past two months, let me read to you the new vision statement of our church. If you could have that up there, it says this NCF exists to bring hope to our broken world through men and women who grow up in the gospel by courageously display their allegiance to Jesus through their priorities, family, and work life, and their compassion to the poor. Number two, selflessly invest in personal relationships in order to share the gospel within their various social networks or oikos. Number three, confidently engage culture with biblical wisdom in order to promote an inclusive community that flourishes Queens, New York City, the world, and the next generation. This series that we plan to do today and every new year is going to look at the very core components of what this vision entails. And today, we're going to take a look at the first core component, which is kind of functioning as the preamble of this new vision, which is NCF exists to bring hope to our broken world through men and women who grow up in the gospel. And if you carefully study that statement, you'll notice that it addresses the very issues that the character Simon brings up when he says, this world ain't the way it's supposed to be. Well, why isn't it the way it's supposed to be? 
Simply put, because the world we live in is broken. We live in a broken world. And part of what it means to be followers of Jesus is that we are called to undermine and to deconstruct the brokenness that we see by being agents of hope. But of course, that begs the question, how exactly do we do that? How do we become agents of hope as followers of Christ? Well, that's the very thing that, excuse me, not Jesus, the Apostle Paul is going to address as we look at this passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And what we're going to see is Paul describing for us what the Christian's responsibility is in this broken world as agents of hope. And here's what's interesting. The way he's going to describe our responsibility is using this phrase, this statement of us shining like the stars, shining like the stars. What in the world is that? Well, that's what we're going to take a look at. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one, what it means for Christians to shine like the stars. Number two, why Christians need to shine like the stars. And finally, number three, how Christians can shine like the stars. Okay, what it means, why we need to do it as followers of Jesus and how to do it. Okay, let's jump right in. First, what it means for Christians to shine like the stars. Now, you might be wondering where I'm even getting this notion of shining like the stars, because as we just read the passage, there is no direct reference to stars, or at least not on the surface when we first read this statement. But here's the thing. If you read this verse in the original language in which it was written in, which is Koine Greek, there you will come to know that when Paul says in verse 15, can we have our passage up? When he says in verse 15 that we are to shine like lights in the world, in the Greek, the original language, that word lights is the actual word for stars, which is why when you read the NIV version, which we just had up there, can we have it up one more time? It actually says, like Paul says this, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Now you're thinking to yourself, what? (laughs) What does that mean? What does that mean to shine like stars in the sky? That sounds so odd. That sounds so vague. That sounds so nebulous. Why is Paul seemingly putting this arbitrary connection between our responsibility in the world and describing it in such a weird, vague way like stars in the sky? Now I know why you're feeling that way. Part of why you're confused, part of why you're uncertain by this whole reference to us being shining like stars in the sky is because you are New Yorkers. What do I mean by that? What do you mean because we are New Yorkers? Well, there's kind of a running joke that says that the only stars New Yorkers ever see are the ones on Broadway or in the movie theaters. You guys ever heard that? The only stars that New Yorkers ever see are the ones on Broadway or in the movie theater. And if you think about it, that's kind of ironic because, yes, on the one hand, it is true. This city is so lit up at night that you cannot see any visible stars up there, even when they're shining directly down on us, right? And yet, on the other hand, it is very ironic to say that because our culture as New Yorkers is one in which we are influenced by the stars than any other culture in America. What do I mean? Well, let me explain. Back in the days of the ancient world, stars were incredibly noticeable. Incredibly noticeable. In fact, so noticeable that some cultures, many cultures, actually venerated the stars. They worshipped the stars. They saw the stars as gods and goddesses to worship and to submit themselves under. In fact, we still see vestiges of this ancient religious way of thinking in the way that our planets are named. Because back in the day, they didn't know what planets were. They thought planets were stars. And so when they were shining, they worshipped these, what they thought, stars, and named them in accordance as worshiping objects. For example, you had Mars, who was the god of war. You had Venus, who was the goddess of love. You had Jupiter, who was the king of the gods, right? Back in the days of the ancient world, stars were 
worship because back then they were seen as sources of divine authority, which meant if you submitted yourself under these stars, these gods, these goddesses would be pleased with you and they would bless your life to where your life would end up flourishing and fulfilling and happy. In other words, stars were believed to have the authority in providing you a happy and fulfilling life. And believe it or not, even though many of us in here, I hope, don't worship the stars, we still submit ourselves to the stars as sources of authority, do we not? Especially as New Yorkers. I mean, what do you do when you want to go to a restaurant? You go on Yelp and you look at what restaurants? The ones that have zero stars? One star? Two stars? No, you go for the ones that have the highest star ratings, do you not? When you go on Amazon, you want to search for a book to read. Do you look for the books that have one star, zero star? No, you go for the four and a half to five stars, right? When you consider the kind of hotels that you want to stay in, maybe you have friends visiting or family members visiting in the city, what hotel ratings do you look for? You look for the ones that have the highest star ratings. Yes, even in our culture today, the notion of stars having authority to where if we submitted to them, would result in us having a happy and fulfilling life. That's why we say, hey, let's go to this restaurant because it has the highest rate of stars, which means what? Let's submit ourselves to the chef that works in this restaurant so that we can have a happy and fulfilling dining experience. Hey, mom and dad are visiting from this, visiting, you know, from us in another country. Let's go into the city. Let's get a hotel room that has the highest rating stars. Let's submit ourselves to the management of this hotel because as they go through it, as they submit themselves and staying there, they will have a happy and fulfilling hotel experience. And of course, we see this in other categories as well. I mean, consider the notion of the military. Who is the highest ranking military official in the military? The general. And what is the insignia that he wears to show that he is that high ranking authority? The stars, two star generals, one star generals, four star generals. Again, this notion, if you are a soldier, if you submit to this person that has stars on his lapel, because by submitting to them, you will end up with a happy and fulfilling life. Namely, you'll win the war, you'll get back home to your friends and to your family. Yes, indeed. Life teaches us that stars equal authority. Authority, if you submitted to, would give you a happy and fulfilling, flourishing life. Now you get why Paul is referring to this notion of Christians shining as stars. Because what is he essentially saying? He is saying that we are to submit ourselves to an authority so that people would see that when we submit to this authority, we are living a happy, fulfilling life flourishing life. That's what Paul is saying. When he says Christians shine like the stars in the sky out in the world, what he's essentially saying, show to the world what happens when you submit your life under the authority of God. Show that you end up not feeling prudish, not feeling repressed, not feeling denied, but instead just the opposite. That when you submit your life under the authority of God, you are truly happy. You are truly fulfilled. You are truly flourishing. That is what Paul means when he says shine like the stars. Let the whole world see what happens when you submit and you give your life to Jesus under his reign. Now by saying it this way, Paul is also indirectly saying something about those who don't choose to submit their lives to Jesus. Those who choose not to submit to God as their great authority. And what is that idea? Well, to explain, let me go to my next point. Why Christians need to shine like the stars. A few years ago, when my oldest daughter, Kara, was around four, I remember driving her to pre-K. And as I was driving, she was just staring out the window, right? And she said to me, Daddy, where are the stars? 
Where did they go? Where are they, Daddy? And of course, at that point, I told Carol, well, honey, the stars are actually still there. You just can't see it because the sun, which is our star, is so bright that it's covering over the stars to where you can't see it. But you see, when the sun goes to sleep, when it's dark outside, then you'll see the stars shining so brightly. And then she proceeded to, oh, Daddy, you are so smart. <laughs> and I said to her, yes, that is correct. Now, of course, all of us know this. We all know this elementary truth that when the sun goes down and it's dark outside, that's when the, sh the stars shine bril brilliantly. And it's this elementary truth that Paul is trying to teach us that as we go out to the world, shining off as stars in the sky, it also says something about those who do not submit their lives to God as their authority. And that is what? The people of the world who don't submit to God or worship God, what are they? They're living in they're living in utter spiritual darkness. That's what Paul is referring to when he says about the people of the world in verse 15 that they are part of a wicked, crooked, twisted generation. Now, if you happen to be here today and you're not a Christian, please don't take offense to what Paul is trying to say. Even though he just called you cricket, crooked and wicked, right? You got to understand that he doesn't mean it in the way that maybe you're taking it. He's not trying to insult you. He's not trying to offend you. But rather, he's speaking the way a doctor would speak to an ailing patient and giving him the honest diagnosis. Or maybe a better way to put it, he's like a humanitarian who's speaking hardcore truth that those who are being oppressed, those who are suffering, need to hear in order to not needing humanitarian aid. You see, Paul, more than anyone, knows the tragedy of what happens when people are living in spiritual darkness. Why? Because Paul knows the Bible. Paul was a scholar of the Bible, and when you know more of the Bible, and when you read it more, one of the things that you will come to discover, as Paul did, is that those who live in spiritual darkness are one in which they want to live out their life fulfilling desires that they have without having to submit to the obligations that are attached to those desires. What's that? Let me explain. In Proverbs chapter 7, we come across an interesting scenario that the author of Proverbs warned young men and really young women not to fall into. Starting in the 6th verse, we read this. While I was at the window of my house looking through the curtain, I saw some naive young men and one in particular who lacked common sense. He was crossing the street near the house of an immoral woman, strolling down the path by her house. It was at twilight in the evening as deep darkness as deep darkness fell. You see that last phrase? Here, the author of this proverb is describing a scenario where you have a young man going out in deep darkness. Now, that phrase, deep darkness, is describing the scene. What kind of night is this? It's a starless night, right? There are no stars out there. Maybe there's cloud cover. Maybe it's after a storm and the sun went down and you can't see any stars. That's the cover that this young man is going and the author of this proverb is using this metaphor to describe what happens when a person wants to satisfy God-given desires, such as sex. God gave us the desire for sex, by the way, so that as we have it satisfied, life gets better. Life is fulfilling, right? Amen, right? Uh, right, honey? No, it's okay. But you know what I'm saying? God-given desires. And yet here is a man who wants to satisfy these God-given desires apart from the obligations that are attached to these desires. He wants to satisfy outside the obligation of marriage. See, the Bible teaches us that God gives us good desires 
right, that make life worth living, but he always attaches to it obligations attached to it, like marriage. And of course, this goes beyond just the frame of marriage. In other areas of life, other desires that we have, he always attaches certain responsibilities and certain requirements of submission to obligations. For example, we all have the desire to flourish, to prosper, and even to be wealthy. And of course, God attaches that desire with the obligation of having to submit your life in such a way that you work hard, that you work with integrity, so that you could earn such a flourishing, substantial kind of life. But of course, people don't want that kind of obligation. They're always trying to get a quick fix, trying to make a quick buck, where they're willing to lie, cheat, and steal in order to have that desire fulfilled. Or other people want to have the desire of respect. They want to be respected, and of course, God attaches that desire with the responsibility of being a person of integrity, of honor, of kindness. But of course, many people find that too ridiculous. The nice man does not win the race. And so what do they do? They bully, they intimidate, right? They use alpha male tactics in order to get the desire of respect satisfied. This is why, according to Paul, the world is messed up. Because it's filled with people who want to satisfy God-given desires, but they don't want to do it by submitting to the obligations that are attached to those desires. And the question is, why? Why is evil messed up? Because people carry a certain assumption about authority. And what is that assumption? That is authority, whether it's authority represented in a person, whether it's represented in an institution like marriage, authority does not have my best interest at heart. Authority is trying to deprive me of the freedom that I need in order to enjoy the satisfaction of desires that I want to have the way it should be, like sex without marriage, with no strings attached, like having money and security without having to submit through red tape and, and trying to be ethical or trying to get respect without having to always be nice and always having to be gracious. No, let me just do it the easy way. Let me just intimidate. Let me bully. Let me get in your face. Here's what's interesting. Paul goes on to tell us that it's very easy for anyone, and I mean anyone, to fall into the spiritual darkness, even followers of Jesus. He tells us exactly how that could happen in verse 14. Listen to what he says in that verse. He says this, quote, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, or as another translation puts it, do all things without complaining and arguing. Now, make sure you don't misunderstand what Paul is saying. He is not saying that it's always wrong to complain. Sometimes it is necessary to complain. Where you are getting bad service that you pay good money for, yeah, you should complain. Or when you see a gross injustice happening in society, in politics, to where people are dying and being mistreated, yes, you should protest, you should complain. But the complaining that Paul is criticizing here is not that, but rather it's the attitude of complaining and whining about anything and everything. This is why he says in verse 15, do all things without complaining and arguing. All things meaning don't always complain about everything, about anything, okay? Which means what, Christian? It means this. If you're one of those people in here who has a chronic tendency to complain, if you're one of those people who have those kinds of personalities where you can find any situation to where you can complain about it, it's almost a, a gift that you have. Or if you have a tendency to be around people and you can easily find something to criticize about them about, I'm sorry to tell you this, follower of Jesus, but that you are living in spiritual darkness. 
you are living in spiritual darkness. If you have that kind of personality, if you have that kind of knack to you, that attitude, you are living in spiritual darkness. Now, some of you are like, wait a minute, Pastor John. You're talking to New Yorkers here, right? We're notoriously known to being complainers. I don't see the connection. How is it that having a complaining spirit means I'm living in spiritual darkness? Well, think about it for a minute. Think about it. Why do you complain? Why do you grumble? Why do you whine? Isn't it because you have a certain expectation that hasn't been met? Or maybe a better way to put it, isn't it because you have a certain desire that hasn't been satisfied? Yes, I'm willing to bet that's the very reason from your last complaint. Think back. Probably don't have to think back that far, right? I need to think back maybe 10 minutes ago. There are so many things and so many people in our lives that we find it so easy, so instinctual to constantly complain about. Why? Because it's about expectations. It's about desires not being met, not being satisfied. But let's dig a little deeper. What happens when you're chronically, constantly, habitually acting and behaving and thinking that way? What happens? What is the outcome? How does that change your outlook on everything? You know how it changes you? It causes you to be so cynical that no one, no matter how credible, no matter how legitimate, could be someone that you submit to as an authority. When you constantly complain, Everyone is dubious in your eyes. Everyone is someone who you can never respect and look up to as an authority. For example, let's say you hear about an amazing restaurant, right? And you heard Michelin star rating, let's go, right? And you're excited because you love to eat. And let's say it just happened that the chef is there, but he's not feeling well. Or maybe he has some problems going on at home, and he's just not at his best behind the kitchen. And he gives his stellar dish, and it's not stellar, and you eat it, what happens? And if you're one of those people who can't constantly complain, what is going to happen to this chef who's supposed to be so authoritative behind the kitchen? You're going to start discrediting him in your eyes, right? And pretty soon, you're going to think all restaurants, all chefs, no matter what ratings, oh, yes, overrated, overrated, or maybe a little bit closer to home. Let's say when you were young, like me, and you wanted to get married, you wanted to have a happy family, you wanted to have the kind of family that you didn't have. But of course, you grow up in a broken home. Mom and dad have the kind of marriage that does not resemble the kind of marriage that you want. What happens? You hang out with friends who have parents who are married, and they're miserable too. And every time you commiserate with your friends, man, marriage is so, so stupid, right? All of a sudden, you get cynical about marriage too, right? See, the more you complain, the more you develop a psychological habit of being anti-authority, whether it's an authority of a person like the chef or an authority of an institution like the institution of marriage that God created for our marriage. The more you complain, the more you develop the psychological habit of not trusting any authority because you just assume that any authority will fail and not have your best interest at heart. Don't you see the reason why the world is as bad as it is is because it's filled with people who want something for nothing. They want something for nothing. They want the satisfaction of desires without submitting to the obligations that are attached to the desires, all because their chronic complaining has, what, deteriorated their ability to trust authority. Now, here's the thing, Christian. If you don't watch yourself and you give in to the cultural milieu of New York of constantly complaining, of always being cynical, 
you will end up being just as spiritually dark as the people that we're called to shine the light of Christ to. And so the question becomes, how do we prevent that from happening? How do we fulfill our mission? We'll begin with question number four. This week on Final Point, how Christians can shine like the stars. Let's read again the beginning of our passage in verse 12. We read, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Pause right there. Lord, attention, please. Here the Apostle Paul tells us how we can avoid becoming cynical and developing a complaining spirit to where we become spiritually dark. Okay? He says that right at the end of verse 12, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, many people have misunderstood these verses for many years. And you're probably one of those people, right? Because I'm willing to bet that when you read that verse, you think what Paul is saying is something like this. Hey, guys, you better live a good Christian life because if you don't, God is going to revoke his forgiveness over you. He's going to revoke the ticket to heaven. And you better be terrified of God to where you stay on your good Christian behavior, right? That's not what Paul is saying at all. That's not what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So the question is, what does it mean? Well, maybe this personal illustration can help. I don't know if Sarah uh, knows what I'm about to share in just a moment, but we'll see. Anybody want to have dinner with us tonight? Anybody? <laughs> but anyway, the night before Sarah and I got married, I was terrified. <laughs> I was scared to the point where I couldn't sleep. Like I was filled with fear and trembling. No, not because I had cold feet, not because I had second thoughts, not because I thought, is there someone else? No, I didn't think any of that at all. No, the reason why I was afraid of my marriage to Sarah, so to speak, right, is because I knew the next day I would be forever attached to that woman until one of us died. I'm not done, right? I'm not done, right? That's not what terrified me. What terrified me was that I would be attached to this woman until one of us died, and I knew that meant inevitably I would do something that would trigger her. I would do something stupid. I would do something wicked. I would do something foolish. I knew that when she married this sinner up here, that I would do something that would hurt her deeply. You see, I wasn't terrified of what Sarah could do to me. I was terrified of what I could do to her. That's what kept me going. That's what made me think, what if she finds out I'm a fraud? What if she finds out that I'm a broken, wicked, perverted sinner like everyone else? kept me up. That fear and trembling is what Paul is talking about here in verse 12. When he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what he's really saying is, grow in your love for God so much. Keep growing in your love for God to where you don't think about how God is going to disappoint you, how God is not going to meet your expectation to where you want to grumble and complain. No, grow in your love for God to an extent to where you are terrified of dishonoring him. To where you are, are not wanting to dishonor, to disobey, to do anything that would break his promise. That is what the Christian should be fearing and trembling over. Not in terms of how God is going to disappoint you, but how you could disappoint God because you love him so much. And here's the thing. When you read verse 13, Paul tells us exactly how we grow and keep growing in this love for God to where we would fear and tremble. Listen to what he says in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, 
It is God who does this in you. It is God who makes you love him so much to where you fear and tremble dishonoring him, disobeying him, right? What is he saying? He's essentially saying the same thing that the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4. Can we have it up there? It says this. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. The more you grow and keep growing and understanding how much God loves you, the more you will grow to love him with fear and trembling. Again, the more you grow in understanding and keep growing in your understanding of how much God loves you, the more you will grow in loving him to the point where you will be filled with fear and trembling. But that begs the question, how does God love us? You know how God loves us? He loves us with fear and trembling. God loves you so much that he was filled with fear and trembling. Don't believe me? You read Luke's version of the night that Jesus was betrayed. What does he do? He goes to the Mount of Olives, and he prays. And Luke tells us that he was praying so hard because he was filled with such fear and such anxiety that what happened? He was sweating like what? Drops of blood, right? What is, that's fear. That's trembling. He was terrified of having to go and face the destiny that was his. He did not want to have to face betrayal by his devoted disciple. He did not want to have to face being humiliated and beaten and dying on the cross. And most of all, he didn't want to have to face taking the cup of wrath when the father would abandon him as he is dying on the cross when he needed his father the most. He didn't want to face that. And yet he faced it boldly. He faced the cross because that's how much he loved that this is the extent of how much God, the supreme authority, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, when you understand that that God loves you this deeply, you know what's going to happen? You will stop complaining. You will stop complaining for two reasons. Reason number one, you will encounter an authority that does have your best interest at heart. He has your best interest at heart at the expense of his own interest. That's what led him to dying a humiliating and miserable death alone. Reason number two, even though you fail God many, many times through your sin, does God complain about you? Does God relinquish? Does he minimize? Does he weaken his desire for you? No. In fact, his desire to love you is so great, you know what he's willing to do? He's willing to submit to the obligations that are required for him to love you that way, which is what? Becoming a man, becoming obscure, being humiliated and crucified on the cross for you. Jesus is willing to submit to the obligations required to fulfill the desire that he had that brought him to the absurd end. He submitted himself to death, even death on the cross. Don't you see? It's only when you see how much you are cherished by God through Jesus that you'll stop complaining and therefore prevent yourself from living in spiritual darkness and instead shine like the stars that God has called you to display yourself to in the radiance of his love and assurance of his presence. I want to tell you right now, young adults, our culture desperately needs that. We live in a day and age where almost every cultural institution is just enveloped with such darkness. The institution of the family, the institution of education, the institution of politics, the institution of entertainment, the institution of nonprofit philanthropy work, it's all corrupt with 
darkness, to where I would imagine, to where if the people of the world had something to say to the church, you know what it'd be? It would be what Simon says in the movie Grand Canyon. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Where are you, Christian? Where are you? Where are the stars for us to look upon? Where is the authority that we can submit to so that we can satisfy these desires in such a way that we would truly be fulfilled, that we would truly be happy, that we would truly be established in living the life of flourishing as we desperately want to live? The world ain't supposed to be this way, but the church, you, are called to push back and show what the world is supposed to be by submitting to the authority that will give you the kind of life that is similar to the desires that he claims to have. And here's the question. Are you doing that? Have you been doing that? Some of you are hearing this and like, well, Pastor John, I want to, but practically I'm having a hard time figuring out how I can do that in a practical context. Well, can I be so bold in giving you some practical next steps of what that could look like? Here they are. Number one. Make sure you really believe the gospel. And what I mean by that is make sure that you genuinely believe that God in Jesus Christ has your best interests at heart. Maybe some of you think, well, I, I think that's the case. Well, here's a test. Are you a person that constantly complains? Are you a person that constantly has a tendency to be such a Debbie Downer and you look at half glass empty and you find everything and anything to complain about? Because if that's you... In spite of what you may think, I don't know if you really believe the gospel. Or maybe you need to grow in your belief of that. Number one, make sure you really believe the gospel. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, that's the first thing that I would ask of you to consider. Would you consider the God of the universe in Jesus Christ has your best interest at heart, evidenced by the fact that he became a man and he suffered the penalty of your sins and my sins so that we could have eternal life? that you can live a life of flourishing here and now. Second thing, could you consider praying for someone in your social network right now, right? Maybe someone at work, someone at school, maybe someone at home, right, in your family. Can you think of someone who you can think about and pray for constantly and try to shine the light of Christ? Maybe it's someone in your oikos groups who's going through a hard time right now, living in this world, and maybe they're frustrated like Simon's character in the movie Grand Canyon. Is there someone in your community that you are part of, some social network that you're a part of, that's really struggling because life is terrible? Maybe you can start praying for that person starting today. And pray for the opportunity for God for you to be present in their life and speak into their life and serve them. Number three, volunteer and serve in the ministry here at MCF. Why do I say that? This is so arbitrary, like I'm sneaking in something that has nothing to do with the sermon, but no. It's not. You know why? Because if the world is, basically, they want to have their desire satisfied without submitting to the obligation of those desires, that should not be here at the church. Far from it. If this ministry is satisfying a desire that you have, which it should, a desire to worship God, a desire to be in community, then you should also submit to the obligations attached to this community by serving, using your gifts, meeting a need, right? And we have a lot of needs. Let's not make the world, excuse me, the church like the world. Let's make the world like the church. 
And let it begin by us making sure that we practically live out that if we are getting blessed here, we also be a blessing with each other. To where if you're being served and you're enjoying of that and you're being blessed by that, may it be by serving and blessing people we continue with this sermon series on the vision, I want to encourage you. Think about our vision statement. Reflect on it. Meditate on it. So that when we go into next week's sermon, you'll have something there, some fertile soil for the preached word to really bear as much good fruit as God wants it to. Next week, we're going to look at this portion of the vision statement. Courageously display their allegiance to Jesus through their priorities, family, work life, and their compassion. Take a snapshot of that on your phone at some point. We'll have it list up during this time after prayer and during offering. Reflect on that. Pray over it and see what God is already preparing you for ahead of time so that when the word is preached next week, it'll fall on such good fertile soil that fruit will immediately pop up for a good consumption and enjoyment of the word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We are so honored by the fact that you call us your own and that you had the desire to love us, that that indeed your father says in the word that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Oh, Lord, how you loved us so much to the point that you obligated yourself to the obligation that was required in order to love us perfectly. You became a man. You humbled yourself and you endured trust tremendous suffering beyond any human being to the very, very end so that we would know how loved we are, so that we could respond with love that would cause us to fear and tremble. Father, I pray that we will be a church that fears and trembles out of love for you in response to your amazing love for us. Oh God, may that be known as a characteristic of NCF. And let it also be attached to that reputation of also being a church filled with members that shine as the stars in the darkness. Father, as we live in a world that is filled with such darkness, Father, we need to be shining the brightest thing we have. So, Father, let it begin in our own hearts. Let it begin in this community. Let it move on forward outside these walls as people that you've called us to serve, to the institutions that we are a part of, and to the community God, would you help us to do that this week? Amen.